From Relay FM, this is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode 38, recorded February 21st, 2023. I am your substitute master of ceremonies, Mike Hurley, and I am thrilled to join Julia Alexander, Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics. Hi, Julia. Hi, Mike. How are you? I am great. I'm so excited to be here today. I am a big fan of Downstream, and I'm very happy to fill in for Jason Snell while he takes a well-deserved vacation this week. Oh, well, we are big, big fans of you, and I'm just so excited to be able to talk to someone with a lovely accent. Oh, it always Every time I talk to someone with an accent, it's like the best conversation, no matter what. You know, Jason has an accent to me, you know. <laughs> so i was you know one of the things i wanted to talk to you about today is streaming in the uk and kind of like how streaming works and content rights work in other countries and i was thinking oh we could do the whole episode on that but then there are huge news stories as there always tends to be in between the last two episodes and i think probably the biggest news you can correct me if i'm wrong when it comes to kind of like online video Mm -hmm. is the fact that it feels like out of nowhere susan wojcicki steps down as youtube CEO with Chief Product Officer Neil Mohan replacing her. What was your initial thought when you heard this news? You know what? I was thinking about it quite a bit because I, um, for listeners of the show who don't know, I spent a few years at The Verge reporting mm-hmm. on YouTube and kind of during a very prominent era. You know, there was, the, there was the first YouTube era, which was like people uploading cat videos and a lot of pirated content on YouTube in like 2006 to 2009, 2010. Then there was this wave, the first wave of creators really coming onto the platform and and finding audiences between 2011, 2012, and 2015, 2016. And then by 2017, the creator economy that we kind of know of today really had firmly established itself on YouTube, um, which led into some really fantastic moments for YouTube as a company when they would have their annual um, broadcast when they would speak to Madison Avenue about advertising, you know, why they had this amazing relationship between consumers and the people who were whose videos they were watching this this moment turned it morphed into one of nothing but constant stress for the company there was the <laughs> pewdiepie moment with anti-semitic yep. comments and yep. um there was logan paul going into a forest in japan and filming a dead body there was terrorism content, far-right content, um, pedophile content. There was all of this content that was coming to the forefront and the advertisers were really concerned and the creators were concerned and consumers were kind of privy to all of this because creators talked about it all the time. They called it the adpocalypse. It was it was this moment where everything that YouTube was had morphed into this image of, of what it of what it really was underneath the surface. Um, and throughout it all, Susan was the CEO, right? Like Susan was the person who oversaw all of this and and led the company through these transitional moments. And I think when she finally stepped down, I felt similar to you. I was kind of like, I, I, it was, it was funny because I had just recently, a few weeks ago, been talking about how she had this extensively long tenure. And unlike a lot of other CEOs in her field, right? You think about a Jack Dorsey, you think about a Mark Zuckerberg who are constantly on their platforms. They are tweeting, they are posting things on Facebook. They are, you know, at all these congressional hearings. They are like kind of, they are so firmly linked to their platforms that they oversee. Susan wasn't. Susan was kind of in the background. People knew her, people knew about her, creators knew her, creators knew about her, but but it wasn't like she was this ominous figure kind of, kind of hanging, hanging over the platform. And I think when she stepped down, it was this moment of like, Wow. Like, what an end of an era for YouTube. How how did you feel about it? Well, it came out of nowhere for me. I mean, similar to you, I only ever really think about Susan when Susan is present, right? (laughs) Like, because outside of when I see her talking about something or she's responding to something, I just naturally think of YouTube as part of Google or Mm -hmm. Alphabet. Right. And I think that that's the way that people thought for a long time. And I think that she may be a little bit less in the spotlight because she's not a founder. You know, like the people you mentioned about being in in Congress and stuff, a lot of them are founders. Right. Right. Um, Or they're just, as is today, controversial figures in their own right. And she was very like understated. And even in the times when YouTube was at its worst kind of creator wise, she still would only ever really speak to the creators, which I actually think was a smart 
move with the way that she handled a lot of the stuff that was going on at YouTube. It was very much creator focused and YouTube would, you know, they would make their videos and she would be on them and other people from YouTube would be on them, but it was always speaking to creators, less of the outside world. But I was still surprised nevertheless, because she seems to have dealt with so much and just taken it in her stride, seemingly, Mm -hmm. that it kind of felt like there was no um, like immediate end to, to her tenure. Yeah, and and I think what's interesting about her, you you brought up a really good point about controversial figures who are now leading companies that they have not founded. And I think everyone's mind immediately goes to Elon uh, for for obvious reasons. Um, And I think what's interesting about Susan is – you know, I think about what what will her you know legacy be, right? What is her legacy uh, within YouTube? And I don't think we appreciate as much or, or think about it as, as much about how fast YouTube grew, about how dominant YouTube is. YouTube is still the only website where you can go create like on demand content and have a and if if you if you're if you're established enough have a decent revenue coming in specifically from YouTube it is the only platform that people still gravitate towards for longer form content on the internet in terms of a creator like creator uh, um creator created mm-hmm. there's a term uh there there's you know it's still the only platform in many ways that advertisers are really flocking to for this type of on demand content from creators right like you have Vimeo and Vimeo tried to be a YouTube competitor but ended up coming almost this like indie film established platform in many ways yeah. you have twitch which is arguably the most competitive to youtube but from a live streaming standpoint you twitch does not have a great on-demand uh, uh uh product and so youtube has been this dominant force for you know more almost more than what's 15 16 years and i think through that susan's legacy is this combination of one youtube could have been much worse than it was at its worst like when we think about YouTube at its worst, when it was all of these creators getting into these um, really nasty situations, which led to advertisers worrying about it because YouTube was effectively paying them for content, right? YouTube was saying, we're going to split revenue with you and you're going to create and that's how we're going to, you're part of something literally called the creator program. Like this is how we're going to to work together. Um, you have advertisers really concerned about it. At the same time, you know, you've got this far right really propagating YouTube. You've got really concerning um, terrorism content on YouTube that they're actively trying to fight. You have the conversations about radicalization still happening on YouTube. And there's all these really nasty effects of having a platform that has more than a billion hours watched, you know, like monthly or, or whatever the metric is now. Like, like this idea of how much is happening on YouTube. I think the fact that she's been able to navigate that company with as little um, controversy as it has, if we really think about its its existence and we compare it to Facebook and Twitter and some others, you know, even compared to Google, when we think about the congressional hearings, it's Google who goes and talks about stuff, right? It's Sundar. It's, it's not necessarily Susan. I think her legacy is being able to navigate that without even more controversy that we naturally would have expected from it. And I think also under Susan, I think there is this moment where YouTube goes from being a confused platform where it was, you know, originally it was creators and that was great. And then they tried to launch YouTube Red, which was like original programming that was supposed to compete with Netflix. And that didn't really end well. In fact, they sold their most prominent show to Netflix, Cobra Kai, where it has been nothing but a huge success on Netflix, arguably being the most exemplary uh, product demonstrating that sometimes it is the product matching the pro- the platform, not necessarily just the product being bad or the platform being bad. Um, So you have this confusion moment where they're trying to do this and then they realize you know susan was the first one to say it back in 20 i think 16 or 2017 she said youtube red is actually a music service i remember everybody laughing at that point Mm -hmm. but if you think about what youtube has really accomplished it is of creating effectively and virtually borderless content right it is the idea that you know bts and k-pop found its moment in the west because of youtube it's anime really found its moment in the West because of some of the uh, series that were carried by like Toonami in America, YTV in Canada. But really, it was a lot of people watching Naruto or whatever on YouTube. Like they, they were watching it next day. We think about um, Bad Bunny and Latin America really helping to find its moment as YouTube. And so I think that will be a large part of her legacy as well, is this ability to foresee what YouTube was going to become and, and acknowledge the failure of what it tried to do. 
you know, you're saying about the, the controversy part. And while YouTube has had its moments, right, where it comes to like terrorism content and stuff like that, I think maybe Wojcicki has been a little shielded in the sense that most YouTube controversies are actually the creators rather than the company, which is not the same for other tech companies, even social media companies. It seems like the majority of controversy on a Facebook or a Twitter is about the platform rather than the individuals. And it just feels like whatever it is, whatever it is about YouTubers, they they become lightning rods for themselves. And it might be potentially because so much of YouTube is then focused around the controversies, right? Like there are just like, pure tea channels right like that's yes. all they do and so it, it creates this controversy that maybe that well maybe there's so much of it that nothing really can stick to youtube the company <laughs> that much i don't know I, I i always joked that youtube was the only platform where you could complain about youtube never-endingly and ha- create a pretty strong business in just doing that yep. whereas in like i complain on twitter about twitter all the time and i get nothing but you know like solidarity like like yep. it's kind of like a lot of people have been like yeah but we're not getting paid by twitter to tweet like like it's it's they we're, we're held hostage on that on that service because of our own addictions um but on youtube Right. You can make a career to your point, Mike, like just complaining about a lot of the YouTube stuff. I remember when I was reporting on YouTube, something that really stuck out to me um, and and something that, you know, we kind of talk about in this podcast on the streaming side. There are aspects of the entertainment and of the media business that unless you're in it are not aspects that you would really think about. A great example is like pay one and pay two windows. Right. Like where does a movie go after it's in theaters? Then it goes to like. Blu-ray digital, then, you know, it ends up on HBO and then like TNT, like those are pay one, pay two windows. No one really thinks about those terms. Mm. But when you look at YouTube, because these creators were so, because creators, to your point, Mike, are like the heart of that platform is what people are watching. They go to the platform to watch creators. Um, Because those creators are so upfront about advertising economics and like the like just just ask like like decay rates that were happening that they saw in their views and the and and things like uh, 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 content being surfaced versus not being surfaced or or whatever it might be you had a huge a whole generation of like 13 14 year olds who understood the ins and outs of like advertising economics in a way that was so surprising to me when i was covering it because it's just not something you think about if you're not in it but there was this transparency between the creators and their viewers on what was happening on youtube um, and I think to your really excellent point, they did act as that shield because they were the ones saying, here's what we're seeing. And so people were kind of getting upset at the platform, but they weren't necessarily upset at Susan. There was a period of time where they were, but it wasn't like we see with Zuck when when people are upset with Instagram, when people are upset with Facebook, you know, it really is like, come on, you know, Zuck, come on, like Adam Asari. Yeah. When there's an issue with Twitter, it's come on, Elon, you know, come on, Jack, like what are these issues? Susan has been kind of shielded from that. She kind of ran it in the background and she let the creators be the first and last line of defense in many ways. And and the only exception was really when it got to a point of what we would consider very, very, very serious, controversial and problematic content, mm-hmm. including the recommendation algorithms really surfacing some um, um, uh, radicalization type videos that she was really brought into the forefront. But it it wasn't that often when we compare her to the other founders and CEOs. So Neil Mohan is going to be taking the CEO post. Uh, Mohan was responsible for Shorts as chief product officer. Do you think that this move is in relation to this, right? Like that YouTube is focusing so heavy on Shorts, so they're bringing in the Shorts guy to run the company? Or was this the obvious next step for them anyway? I think it's a combination of both. I think I was saying this to a friend um, this past weekend. The when When Robert Kinsel, who was their chief business officer for many, many years, when he left in January to go be the CEO of Warner Music Group, that was the moment for me where it solidified that Neil was the next obvious choice. And it was like, these are, you know, there's two people who Susan kind of had by her side throughout between like 2015, 2016 into now. And it was like Neil and Robert. And Robert was the guy that advertisers knew and loved. And he spoke with them and he was talking to the creators and he was very much, you know, the business guy. And Neil was the product guy. But Neil, the reason why I think Neil is the go-to guy now is two things. One, you're hundred percent on the money, on the money, Mike. I think like there's, there's, a fundamental pivot happening within YouTube where YouTube is trained 
its algorithm and its creators, in part because of the algorithm, to post long. Advertisers like long videos, so they would post 40-minute videos and there would be like six advertising breaks, right? And like, so creators started to do that. They started posting 17, 18, 19, 20-minute long videos. What is happening now is this like unfathomable, but also inevitable shift in human behavior to two things. One, they're no longer kind of typing, searching, clicking. They're just scrolling. They open up their phone and they scroll. It's it's mm-hmm. it's up, down. It's not even left, right, right? We associate left, right with dating. Up, down is video huh. entertainment. And yeah. I think the fact that we do that on, like subconsciously is like one of those moments where you're like, this is a fundamental shift in, in in human behavior that affects product design and affects what companies come out of that. So that's one. Two, YouTube now needs to refocus. It needs to redirect all of its audience. It's billions of people who watch YouTube and needs to redirect them to that type of content after training them, right? We And audience behavior, we talk about this on this podcast a lot, is, is very important. Training audiences and audience expectations is important. So now you're training them to do that. You're training them to open an app and expect an entirely different experience. It's a pivotal moment. It is a foundational moment for YouTube. And the guy that you want to be able to do that is the guy who fundamentally understands how people interact with the product. You want your chief product officer to be to go in and do that. But also, and I think this is a key part to the Neil discussion, when Neil joins YouTube in 2015, that is what, a year before the election, it is kind of in the midst of Gamergate. It is right before a lot of the radicalization stuff starts to take off. And it's right before the kind of Logan, Jake Paul, PewDiePie era, that moment starts. And it's just after YouTube engineers have gotten this doctrine of sorts to scale by any means, right? Move fast, break things. Like, like we are going to scale no matter what it takes, which leads to the YouTubers who are actually at their core, they're, they're less creators. They're, well, that's not true. They are creators, but they're also SEO experts. They're algorithm experts. Like they understand how to navigate that better than anyone else. It starts training them to act in a certain way in order to scale alongside YouTube. Neil understands because of when he came in and what he had to kind of go through the first few years that he was there, how to scale responsibly, how to look at things and say, what are the unintended consequences, which is Silicon Valley's favorite term? What are the unintended consequences that we are going to have to potentially deal with as we look at how we want to scale a product and use creators in order to scale that product? And so if you're launching a foundational new product that you're hoping will be the future in many ways of YouTube alongside the VOD that you've already done really well, and you're trying to do that in a way that isn't going to bring with it added levels of controversy or really dangerous behavior that on the app that was unforeseen. You kind of want a guy who's been through that, who who has that in his in his mind because he understands and he has seen firsthand and he has fought firsthand how to really address those issues. And so I think when you when you look at the potential of bringing in someone new, so fresh eyes, right? That's always the argument, bring in someone with fresh eyes, maybe some more experience. Who has more experience in YouTube, and who has more experience in scaling a product in both a safe and ethical, but also proven way, Neil's kind of your inevitable guy. Let's move on to Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, aka Ant-Man 3. I want to talk about reviews, results, and what it could say for the future of Marvel. So this is the brand, This is the movie setting up the whole next phase. We're moving into the whole Kang phase, the Kang Dynasty mm-hmm. and all that wonderfulness which come out of the multiverse saga opening weekend 104 million dollars domestic 225 million worldwide this is performing much better than the previous two movies um i think very solid for an ant-man movie um ant-man is maybe in the the kind of maybe the b tier i would say it's complicated now with the tv shows to try and tier rank the importance of marvel characters but of the people left Ant-Man is Paul Rudd, maybe one of the bigger names, right, of the original kind of Avengers crew. Mm-hmm. Hasn't been reviewing very well, this movie. Uh, have you seen it? I was just about to ask you if you've seen it. Yeah, I saw it. Opening day. I'm opening day for all of them. Like, even for me, it's like, I just want to be there. Like, I want to be yeah. there for the moments, you know, like no spoilers during this yeah. conversation. But yeah, I was there. I've seen it. I had a great time. It was, I did, personally... I don't didn't have a ton of like high hopes for Ant Man, right? Like mm-hmm. I love Paul Rudd, love Ant Man. They are they are comedy movies to me. They are yes. not the big bombastic like 
anything can happen. You know, like I had different expectations for this than I did Doctor Strange, where I'm like, right. all right, I'm going to get a fest of surprises here. Right? So I go into them differently. And I think that the reviews kind of set my expectations correctly, and I mm-hmm. enjoyed it. I enjoyed this movie. Jonathan Majors is incredible, mm-hmm. and I cannot wait to see more. Um, but other than that, like I kind of got what I wanted from this movie. How did you come away from it? Yeah, so I saw it this weekend as well. Um, not opening night, it's on, on Sunday. Uh, and I, I, so I, I kind of have similar things like you, Mike. I went into it low expectation in part because of the reviews. And I was like, okay, well, like, wh- how bad is it going to be? I enjoyed it more than I think the majority of reviews. What I will say is that adding to your point, Jonathan Majors is like the best part of that film. Like, like mm-hmm. he is just light years above kind of what we've seen in marvel in many ways uh but what i think the issue is with something like ant-man and without giving away spoilers but there's no spoilers is it is two tonally different films i to your exact point what i love about ant-man is that it's a comedy it is like it's paul rudd being paul rudd right like peyton reed understands how to navigate this it's a funny movie trying to use ant-man to set up what kang is and being like, he, there's a level of seriousness and there's a level of like diabolicalness and there's a level of like ominous asp, like, 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 uh, like within it. I think it's really complicated because you're trying not to lose the DNA of an Ant-Man movie, which is comedy. It's, it's like dumb comedy in the best way. Um, but then you have like this guy and he's, he's playing a Shakespearean character and mm-hmm. you're like, how do you navigate that? while also keeping the original DNA. And I think that's kind of where it feels at odds with itself. But I, I agree with you. I was like, this movie is fine. Like, like, and I think the term I used on Twitter was like aggressively fine. I was like, it's, it's a fine, like I enjoyed it. It was two hours and 20 minutes or whatever. And I had, a, I had a fun time. I laughed a bunch. Like I enjoyed majors. It was, yeah. but I think what the review speaks, and I want to get your opinion on this, Mike, is less the film itself and more like this feels like the film that a lot of critics who are having Marvel fatigue can be like, this is what we're talking about. Like, like we're tired of this. Like we're at this point where like, we just don't want any more of this. And Ant-Man, because it feels like, okay, we all, none of us feel like this was a wow movie. We can all kind of use this as the pedestal to express those feelings. Yeah. I mean, the, the Marvel fatigue thing is, is interesting to me. I kind of, I, I understand how, if you are not, you know, go into bat for Marvel all the time. Like that you may be tired of having to see three mm-hmm. of these movies a year. Like if you are an, a general film reviewer, you know, and you're like in it for the cinema, you know what? I don't know if this is, if, if this overall thing is great for you, for me, I love all of these things. Like I said, this before, like Marvel is my star Wars. I have grown up with it now uh, what I like to point out to Star Wars fans is that more than a third, at least, of these movies are good, uh, which is not always... I don't, know why I'm, I don't know why I'm attacking Star Wars fans now, but I guess Jason isn't here, so, so I'll do it. Um, these movies, I, I love them. I have a great time with all of them because I always get something out of them. You know, like even mm-hmm. the ones that I don't love i still come away with some element of like great now it's you know i'm invested in this story this has continued to move this story forward i i would question why disney marvel picked this movie specifically for the beginning of the kang story right my gut on this is that they wanted it to have stakes and Ant-Man is maybe one of the only heroes left that the majority of Marvel viewers will have a feeling towards, like an emotional connection towards that they haven't just already done a movie for. Like, who else have you got? Like, be Thor and Doctor Strange. Well, they just had their movies. So they had to pick it somehow, and this is the one that they chose. I mean, I don't know what this says for the next phase as such, if this one starts off middling. Um but I guess that's up to Marvel to work out, right? And and the thing I always talk about with my buddy Matt when we talk about Marvel fatigue is like it it's such a an an interesting statement because you can look at the cinema score, right? So that's your A, B, C that you often see people tweet about. And the phase four into phase 
five, I guess, of, of the MCU has much lower on average cinema scores than phase one through three. And so you can point to that and say, like, there is some audience fatigue happening. They're just not as into it as they once were. But then you look at the box office and to like Mike's point, like this movie outperformed the other two movies. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like it's it's there. There is no fatigue in terms of the actual revenue that that Marvel is seeing. And so I think it's this really. The, where I can see the fatigue happening and we can see this, you know, this is like a, a streaming podcast and, and we can see this on the streaming side of, of, of Marvel is the interweaving of all of it, I think, is getting a little bit to people. But so is the amount of shows that they have to watch, which is why you now see Bob Iger and Kevin Feige say we're going to slow down the amount of Marvel shows we're putting out. Like I think we're that's not going to have. Like, and I do too. And also for me, you know, like people on this podcast know I love to get into capital efficiency. From a capital efficiency standpoint, you can look at the number of shows that they're putting out. A, a Marvel show on average costs between $80 million and $120 million. You're putting out five of those. If you put out three of those, there would not be a huge difference in churn or customer acquisition. No. Like it, it would not actually impact the business, but you could save yourself like $240 million. And you can kind yep. of figure out ways to delay that and, and make sure the fatigue is not there. And uh, without, again, there's no spoilers, but there is a, a, there's a post-credit scene that kind of interweaves everything together. And I turned over to a buddy and um, he was like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I like there's aspects of this I don't get. And I was like, well, have you seen this? And he was like, no, should I? And I said, well, and his buddy turned to him and said, you you don't understand, man, you got to watch it all. Like you you got to, you got to watch it all. I said, or you got to read the Wikipedia. Or you kind of just got to like go do a wiki going in. And I think I saw this look on his face where he, you know, he's 33 and he was like, I don't know. He's like, he's like, I'm thinking of kids. He's like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I've got like this much effort in me anymore. <laughs> I've got kids to make. I don't watch all these movies. Yeah. That's he's fantastic. like, I don't know if I got this effort in me. And, but like, that's, that's the fatigue that I see is like the yeah. combination of everything. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the, the Wikipedia page for Disney plus shows and, Kind of in the 2021 shows, if we would have had half of them, I would have been happier, right? Like, I I love this stuff, but I don't I don't think it is possible for any group of talented creators to produce the same high level content at this frequency. Like, right? It's too much. It's right. just too much, and. The the fatigue may come from people having too much to watch, but then if it's also going to be too much kind of good stuff, like that's not it's not worth it. It's, as you say, it's not worth the money. And because I, you know, just from a common sense perspective, what you said about the idea of five to three not really changing people from canceling makes so much sense to me. Like if it's three months rather than one month until the next show how many people realistically say i will now cancel my subscription for the next three months like i just don't think realistically people do that no and and you and you dig into the audience profile right so this is like my job's a large part of what i do you dig into the audience profile people who are specifically signing up for disney plus for marvel or star wars and you take away two of their shows well star wars a little bit harder because there's like three shows but you take away two of the marvel shows um those audiences are not going to go anywhere anyways because they tend to rewatch film. They tend to be yep. interested in other Disney things. They like they tend to be they tend to be um streaming bundle subscribers, so they're also p- paying watching Hulu. Like there's aspects of them that are not going to go away versus if you compare it to kind of an audience profile, some of the Netflix consumers where they're like, ah, if I don't have this show, like I, I'll be just as happy on like Max or I'll be just as happy on, on Hulu. Like I don't need this. That's where you have companies, what we call general entertainment streaming services, really looking to kind of figure out how they can keep everyone satiated. It's a much more difficult to grind. Disney Plus, I mean, it's 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 a it's the second largest streaming service in the world, but it's also a niche service. It's 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 franchise based, and then kids like it's it's not a huge general entertainment platform. And I do think what this says about the streaming strategy is that when so for a quick reminder, when Disney launched Disney Plus, Kevin Mayer was in charge. This was before Chapek kind of comes in and reorganizes everything. There was an idea of how to do original series on Disney Plus. And the idea was not like you have to figure out through this like third party kind of being brought in what the best way to have these shows appear on Disney Plus versus the Disney Channel versus theatrical whatever whatever it may be. It was hey, 
you're going to have four slots a year. You can fill these slots with whatever you want. It can be a, a TV show that runs six weeks. It can be a, a, a cool movie that you don't think can put in theaters. It can be a documentary, whatever it is. You need to give me four, like, four slots. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that the studio heads would better understand how they could use Disney Plus alongside their other product to really strategize on these on these franchise building. They could, they, you know, Star Wars would figure it out with Kathleen Kennedy. Feige would figure out Marvel. Sean Bailey would figure out live action. Like there was all there was this there was this direction. When Kevin left, a bunch of other people left. Agnes Chu left. When a lot of them like Iger left, Chapek comes in. He reorganizes it, and Chapek goes. Well, now we're going to have uh, Kareem Daniel kind of overlooking the distribution side, the financial side of a lot of these these properties. So Kareem is going to be the guy, him and his team, who decided something should go to like Disney Plus or Hulu or like whatever. This made it really difficult for creatives, and so you have a really confusing moment happening with disney plus where it's like well what do we do with all these shows like do, mm. should we release it now should we post like and luckily or maybe not luckily but we never actually saw a lot of this come to fruition on the platform because there just wasn't enough time in the chapek era but that idea is what leads to a lot of concern right because you can't just say like well we'll just keep releasing these on the platform because we're making them it's like well no you, you kind of have your slots and i think you can bring it down to two or three slots and as long as those shows are high quality shows that really interweave but like with the films but in a way that serves the audience instead of frustrates the audience then it's doing its job and those customers are not going to cancel their their service it's it's just not going to happen it's not like they're signing up for modern family when modern family's gone they're gone it's it's a whole other uh a conversation to be had and i think we're starting to see that now so i'm interested to see how the slowdown in streaming stories affects the film side as they plan for phase six or seven or eight or whatever phase they go into I also really think like COVID just blew a hole in all of this for them. Like yeah. with the the scheduling of things, the amount of movies that had to move around, and if you're trying to tell this consistent story across various properties across various platforms, I don't think it helped with the overall storytelling over the last mm-hmm. few years. And it, this is one of the things that I'm really keen to keep my eye on as the next couple of years progress is how this changes. I don't feel great about the fact that they've moved Marvels from May to November. Yep. So that that's like that's the exact thing I don't want to see. Like, can is this movie really movable by the best part of six months? Like, mm-hmm. and it still makes sense in the overall story that you're trying to tell. I hope so. That's just the issue with Guardians, right? Guardians had a yep. huge delay in part. God, I mean, this feels like 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 centuries ago, but James Gunn was fired. <laughs> yep. He was brought back, and there was a bunch of other issues in part because of COVID, to Mike's point. There was all these things, and then Guardians is like it, – it, it almost is like, sure, right? Like, you're like, you're like this, is, this movie's just going to end. Like, that, like, this trilogy's over. And, it, yeah, it just feels a little bit out of whack in the way that the first – and really the second and third, like the mm-hmm. first era or first phase of Marvel was still experimental, but they didn't know if it was going to work. And so they were kind of setting everything up. Second and third phase knocked out of the park. Really, the third phase is like a strong phase. It's like they have Endgame and Infinity War to kind of guide them through. They know what they're setting up. They've got the advantage of Captain America and Iron Man and Thor and people being into this. Spider-Man comes in. Like they have like these well-known characters and the ones that they've introduced have really taken off, right? Black Panther's really taken off. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Ant-Man's really taken off. Captain Marvel's taking off. And then I think you get into this new era and people are like, not super into Black Panther. They, uh, sorry, uh, not super into Black Widow as a standalone. They were not super into the Eternals, right? So they're kind of struggling to find, like, Shang-Chi had a good base, but like they're really struggling to find like who yeah. carries them through. And I think to Mike's earliest point, when that leaves you with Ant-Man to introduce Kang without relying on just the streaming side to do it because you need a big screen presence in order to really drive that home, it gets complicated and it makes viewers feel confused and frustrated, including Mm -hmm. those like Mike and I who are like opening weekend people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I think that's a tough thing for them to wrangle. And, And I do, to your earliest point as well, about sometimes there's just too much for one person. There's a really great comment it's 2017. John Langraff is the head of FX. He was talking about Netflix. And the, the, at this point, Netflix had like doubled its order for original series, right? So they went from being like four or five billion in, in original content to like 10, 11 billion. And John Langraff was talking to press and he said, you could give me 
like 10 more people and I still wouldn't have all the time in the world to address those shows the way that they would need to be addressed. They're good. Like in order to really see that through. And I think you look at Feige and Feige has his like parliament of producers or whatever he calls them, like the Marvel parliament. That's like 11 or 12 producers. And that's still across all these series, across all the films, across all the other initiatives that they're looking into, including gaming or whatever it might be, the theme park expansions. It's like, it's a lot for, for a few people. And really like Feige, it sits with him. And I think there's a, a moment where you kind of go, we need to slow it down because we need to get back on track with what we're trying to figure out. Just as a correction, uh, Marvels went from July to November. I said May. So it may have been – my hope on that one is that they just – there was supposed to be a movie for the November slot, which they typically have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they just – that movie got pushed or something, so they've just moved this one up because it was the last one you know, that they've got in the mm-hmm. slate. We'll see how that goes. You mentioned James Gunn a moment ago, and I do wonder, you know, now with him heading up DC, I wonder if in the long run – Marvel, uh, Disney firing him could end up being a problem for them. Like when it comes all the way back around again, like if mm-hmm. he can pull that off, and Marvel have some actual serious competition for this kind of movie, I wonder what that would do. I don't know. Like, but I do. I I so hope that he's able to make this work with the DC universe. Like, I want it. Oh yeah. You know. Oh yeah. Same. And I, I think actually DC's another. You can almost like contrast dc and marvel from both like uh, well obviously from a feature film side but also on a streaming side when you talk about how it can be really confusing for fans to really follow along with everything and this parlays down to like there are comic book readers and comic readers are the kings and queens of mastering complicated jumps like like it's like they're like you got to read this comic to understand and they get it they're like okay no problem i get what i got to do When you give that to a mainstream audience who is used to a very linear format of like you watch season one to understand season two, and then maybe by season 10 in a show like Grey's Anatomy, they introduce like a spinoff. It's like private practice. And they're like, okay, I get that. Like, then I go watch and there's my one character there. Mm -hmm. But it really gives them time to figure figure this stuff out, right? Like uh, uh, Frasier and Cheers. I think when you look at what DC is trying to do, because even Marvel's a little bit more linear, right? Like you kind of look at, okay, well, Doctor Strange pulls from WandaVision and you're like, okay, cool. I, these characters are introduced in like Age of Ultron and before and, and just after that. And then I watch them and like, I get it. DC is so, is in this weird predicament where they've got amazing shows like Peacemaker. They've got the Penguin coming out with Colin Farrell. But then they have like Flashpoint, which is going to reset everything. But they're not going to work with Ezra Miller again. And then James Gunn is revamping everything. And so you have all these moments, if you're a DC fan, of being like, okay, well, there's the Snyderverse. And then there is like Peacemaker from the Suicide Squad. And that's one universe. And then there's like batman the batman and then the penguin that's another universe it's still bat- going to be its own universe even when the dcu right. <laughs> what they call it else worlds i think else is the World, phrase yeah. using. yeah exactly and then you've got like joker which is its own thing and so you're if you're a fan you're kind of like none of this matters right you're yeah. kind of like i don't yeah. i don't have to follow it. like i can just not like on one hand there's a freedom in being able to say i'm actually just going to watch the animated harley quinn series because that's great i don't really care about any of this other stuff if you are warner brothers discovery and you're dc and you're spending how much money yep. to try and get people to come into these are all called gateways right they're portals into the dc universe and none of it connects and so therefore you don't have to watch any of it at least with marvel you're like okay well i'll watch it because i want to know what's going to happen in the next thing that's a really difficult business and cultural situation to be in and and to your point about james gunn i really hope that him and his partner can can turn that around and but it's going to take years before we see the 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 fruits of their efforts really or fruits of their labors really come yeah. into play and i'm just like dc is in this position where Almost similar to Harry Potter, both owned by Warner Brothers Discovery, both in really uh, dicey predicaments, mm-hmm. where you're kind of like, there's no reason for me to care as much anymore. And I still do because I'm a fan, but you've got to give me something. And and I just worry that we're getting to this moment of people being really confused by everything and people being frustrated and, and people like my friends who are like, I'm going to have children. Like, I, I, I don't have time to worry about this. Like, And then you've got a new generation of kids who are coming into a really confusing moment. And it's like, how do you get on to that, right? When I, when Iron Man came out, I was like 16, 17, and it was perfect. 
mm-hmm. was like great. Like like I know exactly what is happening. I was linear, and then by the time they got into the streaming stories, it was like they had had twenty two films. And so you're like, okay, well, it's, this is easier for me to kind of build. It. You, you know, the, the MCU for the first th- four phases was the perfect season of television. Like, that's what it was. It was a season of television. And now you've got 18 different seasons from five different shows all trying to relate to each other. And at some point, people are just going to be like, I'm just going to watch John Wick. Like, I, like, I'm good. Like, I don't, I don't need that. It's cool. It's fine. All right, let's take a break and thank our sponsor for this week's episode, and that is Snapstream. Does your business rely on making fair-use TV recordings to get clips? In this new age of streaming apps and over-the-top TV, how are your company's jimmy-rigged recording techniques holding up? Whether you need to send proofs to advertisers to make sure you get paid, which is important, or need to build portfolios of talent that your agency represents, getting clips of video content is vital to your business. But wouldn't you rather spend your time doing almost anything else than managing video recordings? Snapstream, the definitive live video clipping product, is here to help you. Snapstream made its name as the product that The Daily Show and other late-night shows use to record, transcribe, search, and quickly repurpose TV clips. Now, Snapstream's source acquisition service assists companies in capturing hard-to-get sources of live and on-demand video delivered to your own Snapstream cloud instance. Difficult becomes easy when someone else is doing it for you. Let Snapstream take this one off your hands. Visit snapstream.com slash downstream today and you'll receive 10 free recording hours when your company signs up for an annual subscription with Snapstream Source Acquisition. That's snapstream.com slash downstream. Go there now and check it out. Our thanks to Snapstream for their support of Downstream and Relay FM. All right, so Julia, let me set this one for you, okay? So I live in the mm-hmm. UK. In case listeners hadn't guessed by now. Uh, although some British listeners think I'm American typically now Ooh. because I have this like weird transatlantic accent. But nevertheless, I live in the UK and I hear on all the podcasts that I listen to like this one, all of the amazing TV shows that are available. You know, so people are like, oh, you've got to watch The Bear or you've got to watch Our Flag Means Death. So I'm like, great. Off I go to the various streaming apps that I pay for and I can't find any of this content. So companies like HBO, Peacock, right? So like with uh, NBC, a lot of these companies seem to, outside of the US, do deals with distributors. So for me, one of the big ones is Sky. So Sky has deals with HBO and NBC to show content from their platforms on Sky, Right. It's not actually, I don't get access to HBO Max, for example. I can't do that. Any HBO content I have to watch on Sky. Now, this is a part of an arrangement they had before HBO Max existed. HBO stuff was always on Sky. But even after the creation of HBO Max, HBO and Sky have renewed deals to continue showing content. Now, this would be fine if I could actually watch the content. But I can't. So, for example, Our Flag Means Death, Peacemaker, they took like six months to come to Sky for (laughs) an inexplicable reason. Uh, Hacks, right? HBO Max. That's on Amazon Prime here. I don't know why. Uh, The Bear took months to come on Disney+. Plus. So I wanted to kind of get the lay of the land from you of why do these companies do this? Why don't they want the direct-to-consumer relationships they want in the U.S.? And do you have any idea why the content release is so sporadic? It is one of the most frustrating elements um, of living abroad and having so much of what is in conversation entertainment-wise dominated by American-produced and released um, content producers. Oh, just before you go on, of- I have to mention one more that I will forget otherwise, and it's one of the wildest. And I'm because you yes. said what's in conversation, The Mandalorian, right? Mm. So The Mandalorian came out, and it was you know everywhere, Baby Yoda everywhere, right? But it was it took like a few months at least before Disney Plus launched in the UK. When it did, they still put it weekly. Like I know everything that's happened. It's impossible to to avoid it. But even after, like the entire show had finished, the for season one, and then we got weekly release. Oh, <laughs> sorry to interrupt you, but that one just popped into my brain, and I had to get it out. This stuff, no. I don't get it. 
please interrupt me always. Uh, <laughs> I no, it's but it's a good example, and it's so funny to me when I hear this. My first thought is always like, and then people are like, "Why is piracy on the rise?" And yeah. I'm like, "You, we, it's 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 a foundational issue." Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of reasons for this. One, let's let's rewind back. Let's <laughs> rewind back. One, there was this moment, and um, by rewind back, I mean to like. 18, 18 months ago, there was this moment where all these companies thought we need to exist in every territory, right? Remember, everybody for streaming was following the Netflix playbook. And so they were like, cool, we'll launch in the US, Canada, uh, Mexico, kind of North America. We'll launch here. We will build up our, our consumers. We'll collect data. We will understand how they are interacting with shows, films, how they're interacting with the platform. We will look at their at pricing strategy. We will look at acquisition and retention behavior. And then we will expand elsewhere. And so if you are a company like Disney, you made that pretty quick. You were kind of like, we're going to go as much as we can pretty fast in order to catch up to Netflix. If you were Comcast, which owns NBC Universal, um, Warner Brothers Discovery, who owns HBO Max, Paramount owns Paramount Plus, you kind of went a little bit, you staggered it. You were in certain European countries, right? Within the industry, there are like tiered European territories. And so like a tier one European territory would be like the United Kingdom, France, Italy to an extent, Germany, or like, like these are areas that are like tier one. Um, tier two would get into like um, Bolivia or whatever it might be. And so you kind of go through. Uh, what they realized pretty quickly is kind of this moment of what we call um, content optimization, right? It is this idea that instead of launching direct consumer platforms in those regions and really trying to compete with a stronger Disney Plus that had a combined star offering that was similar to our Hulu, um, try to compete with Netflix, try to compete with the, compete with Prime Video, they could sell at higher rate to those platforms. And so they could say, if you have hacks, uh, you might the production company might have a deal with Amazon Prime Video and therefore Prime Video carries mm-hmm. it. And also HBO Max is not available. So instead of selling it to Sky as part of the HBO deal, when it's on HBO show, it's an HBO Max show, it gets to go to Prime Video because they can sell it for maybe twice what HBO, uh, what Sky was willing to pay for it. Um, you also have the fact that Comcast owns Sky, right? So you have, they're going to use Sky in many ways for, as their distribution arm in the United Kingdom or wherever else that they're looking at around the, the world. So a lot of it is just a cost judgment call. It is like, does it make more sense for us to license it out? We also, you know, you talk to people at ITV, huge company um, in Europe, you talk about ITV studios, and they are looking at the formats that they own and how they're kind of distributing it. And so they're looking at different partners. And the BBC does the same thing globally, where you've got something like Bluey, which they then sell to Disney Plus. And so it's it's because it's a, it's a different region. They don't necessarily need to be an established DTC base there. They can sell to local broadcasters. They can sell to other streamers who are already established. And because they need to start paying down debt, lots of debt, that they're saying, well, we make, it makes more sense for us to license out. Right. You'll also see combined entities, right? So something like Sky Showtime is launching in some European markets where Peacock does not exist um, and where I suppose Paramount Plus does not exist. And the idea is instead of trying to compete again on a DTC level in all these different areas, what if we just combined offerings to take on a Disney or a Netflix? The issue, though, is that because they have deals already in place with those in the United States, so like let's say it's just let's say it's HBO and Max in the U.S. and they're going to run on HBO Max first there, they're then in a locked window. It then goes into a new window when it hits like Sky or whatever it may be in Europe. It, it needs to wait that period of time because of licensing agreements, because of rights agreements with the production companies, whatever it might be. It's nonsensical in twenty twenty three. It right? doesn't like, make sense because. What are the rights windows matter if I literally cannot see it? Yes. Right? Like, if I can't watch Peacemaker at all, like, I can't buy it. I I would buy it, you know? Like, let me buy it from you. Put it on iTunes and I'll buy it. But no, I have to wait. And it's like, it's so, it's maddening because in... The age of social media, right, which is a big part of what makes these companies successful, I'm missing all of the discourse, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm missing the moment, and therefore they are missing it for me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I understand, even though it frustrates me, I understand why HBO 
will go to Sky, ink that deal, and they've got guaranteed money, right? Like, or whatever it is. But it's money that they can bank on. They haven't got to outlay the cost of putting HBO Max in more territories, etc. right? It's just like, we could, we have this agreement, we can do it. But then to then not have all of the content available is very, it just feels very peculiar. And it, but it does feel like Sky gets all of the big top tier stuff. And then the rest is like, We'll, we'll kind of do it on a case-by-case basis. It's just like such an erratic and sporadic way of dealing with content releases. It it doesn't make sense in 20... Like, this is the exact issue. The, the minute that... I, I, listeners of this podcast have heard me say this time and time and time again, but, like, the minute that the iPhone launched and the App Store launched and our lives changed irrevocably across the board from how we get our cabs to how we watch our entertainment... What needed to catch up to that and that which has now led us right to this moment, it was the app store that led um, and the iPad that led Reed Hastings to say, like, we should probably have a streaming service that's streamed on devices like this. Like, like, like once that moment happened, what needs to follow is the law. And the law is always 25 years behind technology. And the law here is like right stuff. It is like this ongoing antiquated structure that we use in order to say like oh well they get exclusivity here they go and which is like all of entertainment is owned by like five companies it doesn't make any sense to say like well we own this and we kind of own that and there's no reason that and therefore there's no reason that it shouldn't appear day of over here or if you're striking those new deals there's no reason why if you're hbo max you can't say well we're going to air it on max in the u.s and also sky can have that we'll sell summer prime can have that and i'll have it next day mm-hmm Right. There's and you start seeing some of these changes again, really led by Amazon Prime Video, Disney Plus and and Netflix, really Netflix, who's saying, like, we're not going to strike deals that are not global. Like we are we are going to make sure that we can have the same show in the same territory uh, for, for the originals um, at the same time. Like there's, we're not going to stagger it out. They have some instances where they've got like a local show that maybe is only on a specific, you know, like France netflix and that's because they've got to meet a quota and so they're kind of figuring out localization stuff they don't think it's going to travel there's there's a lot of stuff happening on the back end there but for big shows that are at the center of conversation if you don't find a way to get it out on the same day around the same time so it's like you know it's midnight uh on the the pacific 3 a.m east coast that would be like 5 a.m in england 8 a.m in england whatever it is Mm -hmm. if you don't have a way to do that what you're going to see is an increase in piracy. Like it, it is the only thing that's going to happen is people because it's so easy. And again, I'm not for all legal purposes. I'm not condoning piracy, but it is so easy to do it. It is no longer like I have to go and find a seed and download it. It's like you open up an app and there's a thing and it's like people have uploaded it and you just hit play and it streams. No, you just and it's like, log into your friend's Plex server or like whatever it is. Like so much easier now than it ever was. And I don't like to do any of this stuff because it's frustrating and annoying to me for me like i just want to be able to open an app and press play on the content that i want to watch it is yes wild that this is still it's actually not that it's still a thing it's now a, a thing in new ways to what it yes. was before which is only making it more frustrating for me like you mentioned netflix like for me netflix is the king of this kind of stuff because content mm-hmm. they own is available everywhere. Right. And one of the great things about Netflix, they became like a savior for people in the UK with shows like Breaking Bad where they picked up the rights. And they, Netflix do this for a bunch of shows in different territories. I'm sure you're well aware. They will pick up the rights and then put them on at the same time. So like I could, was able to watch um, both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul on Netflix and they right. would come out weekly, and it would be out the next morning after it was on in the States. It's perfect. That's exactly what I want. And isn't this the irony? I, I literally uh, have uh, just was just talking to a friend about this. Like, the, we were talking about how important Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul were to Netflix, both domestically, but especially internationally, where, to your point, it aired weekly. And like how that took away from AMC plus, right? Like how, Mm -hmm. like, like, and how that took away from that because they made so much money licensing it out to Netflix. Netflix paid so much for it that it was like, cool, that makes sense. Netflix, to your point, was like, well, this is going to be an international thing. Like we're only looking at global rights. Like we want to make sure we have it. And it was a huge part of them. You hear Ted Sarandos in like 2013 
So the biggest moment for Netflix prior to them really launching original content was when Breaking Bad and like, I can't what year it was, maybe 20... 12 maybe yeah. it was 2013 won the emmy for best uh drama and people like oh, that night on netflix globally people were watching the first season of breaking bad and it was like that was their moment and everyone that i knew was signing up for netflix at that point because that, it was the show in the world and netflix yes. just had it that's exactly it and i i know when when, when my comp my ceo wore it launched parrot the company that i work at mm-hmm. the reason that they launched it was because he lives him and majority of the team live in new zealand and the whole reason that they launched it was because they couldn't get Game of Thrones when it was airing. And it was, it was, this was what, 2013. So they couldn't get Game of Thrones when it was airing. And they were, but they were on Twitter, right? This is what I was saying about yep. the iPhone. Like, like once you had social media and everyone's talking about everything, there is no like, well, it doesn't really matter because, you know, I had to, the reverse for me, uh, British listeners was I, my dad's British and I grew up with Coronation Street in our household huh. and Corey was always six months behind. And so my aunt would call and she would give me an update on Corey <laughs> and I would be like six months and I would, we were talking about it. And I remember being so frustrated. And that was like, I mean, a great soap opera, but it was a soap opera. It was like nothing really much has changed in six yeah. months. This is like Game of Thrones or The Mandalorian or or whatever it might be, Succession. And it's like, you're not getting it. And you're connected to people globally who are tweeting about it two minutes after it airs, right? Like The Last of Us. And it's... It doesn't make sense anymore, and it is a struggle that they're all trying to figure out. And and the only one who's gotten it right is Netflix, and Disney Plus is like trying to figure Disney's it out because close. now that Disney's, Disney's close. close, the Hulu stuff is a problem. Right, we get it, and I love that we have that content available. Like Disney in the UK is full of adult content, which is like very strange. Like you know, like sometimes I would open Disney and I'd be like. Hey, here's this kid's show, and here's Pam and Tommy. It's like, whoa, hang on a minute. Like, all on the same page. You know, like, if you don't have child lock on, it's just all there, right? So it's great that we get the content, but it is, some of the Hulu content is staggered a bit by a few months, but at least they have it. And everything new from Disney, we just get all of it. Like, I think Disney, for me, come in like a second place to Netflix. What I think is likely to happen is that you will see new rights agreements. Well, no one here will see them unless you work in rights agreements, but you will see rights agreements encompass this. You'll see them say like, we want this either next day or day of, right? Like eventually, yeah. I think eventually HBO aired on Sky on Mondays, uh, excuse me, Game of Thrones aired on Sky on Mondays, if I remember correctly in the mm-hmm. UK. It was like next day. So like maybe they get to a point where they're like, we get it next day. And that's still not great, but it's better than waiting six months to, to get By the a end, new season of something. You could set up and watch it. Like they would Game of Th- by the end Game of Thrones was on in the middle of the night here. Like it was possible for you to just go do it. Be- I know this because my wife would get up incredibly early in the morning to watch the final episodes. And so like it's the same. Like when I you know in the morning we have Sky, and in the morning like on Mondays The Last of Us is all over everything. You know like you can just start yeah. watching it, especially if you have one of the streaming products. They don't even need to program it, so they just make it available immediately. But I think they do have, like, technically, like, a hey, it's Monday night, but you can just watch it early. Yeah, and and I think that's what you'll see a lot more of across the board. Um, it's just there needs to be this realization, and there is. There is a realization, and now there needs to be an actionable moment where we look at the fact that entertainment is global importing and exporting entertainment is global and it is timely and it is you if you want the conversation to drive viewers to then drive potential subscribers or just to drive additional engagement which is going to benefit the advertisers or it's going to benefit the value of your of your product whether your product is a platform a distribution line or just a show itself you need to have the ability to have a global audience tune into it at around the same time yeah to take into account like time zones around the same time or when they when they need to want to access it and i think it's just an antiquated ideology that will eventually go away but it is difficult to move things in areas like entertainment and media and god policy and and law right it is Mm -hmm. just it's slow moving and i think we're getting to that point but hopefully within the next five six seven years it'll be much much better well, as you and Jason tell me every two weeks, the uh, the amount of streaming services are going to start reducing anyway. So we'll see what happens. You know, <laughs> who knows? Who knows what's going to happen there? Julia, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for answering my questions. 
Thank you so much for joining. This has been great. And look, obviously Jason's job is safe, but but this has been really, really fun. Whenever Jason needs a week off, I'm always standing by. (laughs) Good. If you have a question for the show, visit downstreamfeedback.com. I believe that there is a big backlog of letters, but I don't take that pleasure away from Jason. So I'm sure you will both be dealing with some letter segments upon his return. Love to your mothers. You can find Director of Strategy Julia at at LoudmouthJulia on Twitter and at ParrotAnalytics.com. You can find me on my many other shows here at Relay FM. I'm also in the Relay FM members Discord, which is a lovely community. And you can support this show while you're doing it, if you like, at relay.fm slash downstream. Until next time, when Jason will be back, thank you for having me, Julia. Thank you so much for being here, Mike.